is Kevin Flood on the club. The NG Owners Club was formed in 1973 to serve the growing needs of the NG sports car enthusiast. Over the past 40 years, the NGOC has concentrated on making it easier, cheaper and more enjoyable to own an MG. The vast membership base has helped turn the reputation of being the world's largest single mark car club. Richard. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I've covered a little bit of your uh, your background there, but could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into the classic car world and how you ended up in charge of the uh, largest single mark club? Yeah, it, it's a hobby that turned into a job, and there's probably not many people can say that. So it started in 1973. It was actually formed by my friend and colleague, a chap called Roche Bentley, and he saw that there was a need for like-minded enthusiasts to get together and... It actually was formed in, in Luton. Roach lived in Luton. Uh, I lived in Dunstable, which was just a couple of miles down the road. But prior to meeting Roach, he was running sort of meetings in a pub in Harpenden. Mm. And the thing was, it was just a nucleus of people who had MGs and common interests. And who would have believed that it would eventually snowball into, uh, well, what we have today, where we're serving uh, 25,000 members worldwide. Listen, it's an incredibly large club. And I mean, once I started doing a little bit of research for our our interview I, I suddenly realized how big it actually was yeah it's been it has been bigger than that actually in in our heyday in the 80s and early 90s we peaked at 53,000 members so uh, almost double what we've got today but well yeah more than double but that was really in the era when uh, Abingdon closed um, MG's were built at uh, a factory in Abingdon and that factory actually closed down in, in 1980 and around that period there was a real groundswell of support and we went from about I think at the time we were around sort of nine or ten thousand members and we rocketed up to dub- double that in that period there was uncertainty about oh, you know I've got an MG what on earth is going to happen but really we've we've built the club on um, offering support to owners of the cars in, in many many ways and I think at that time I'm not saying panic set in but people were saying yeah, how are we going to get spare parts how are we going to get this and that so um, we fulfilled a need during that, that period of course MG didn't die then it was kept alive and in, in the intervening period after the MGB finished production at Abingdon moved to um, Longbridge and MGs were made there you may recall Metros yeah, Maestros yeah. Montegos yeah. and ultimately an RV8 was produced which was a, like an MGB on steroids so, uh, <laughs> a very expensive car in its time, you know, 25,000 plus. But no, the name was kept alive during that period and then ultimately it went into well, BMW's ownership followed by um, a buyout which became M- MG Rover and now ultimately MG is still alive and kicking owned by the Chinese. Shanghai Automotive actually owned the mark and you can still buy MGs in the UK. Not quite as we know them, no two-seater sports cars but yep, MG alive and kicking still. Yeah, I did notice during my research you've actually been over to take a look over in China at the, the MG setup there. Yeah, I was invited over a few years back now I've been over twice to Shanghai and I was invited to get involved in a brand awareness conference when originally Nanjing Automotive purchased the remnants of MG Rover but I mean clearly MG out there in in their home markets and other markets that they're in doesn't quite mean the same to owners in the UK probably Mm. and or certainly in America where this broadcast is going to go out it doesn't have the same appeal I don't think because they're not fully aware of the heritage and history but I think they're slowly being introduced 
into it because SAIC do do realise the the importance of you know remembering the heritage and history of MG, and it does really in a in a, a complimentary way help help sell the cars. Yeah, because classic um, classic British brands are very popular in China, aren't they? So I guess that's the one of the main reasons for buying the brand, really. I would think. Well, I, th- I think they've got ambitions to develop it into a really large worldwide brand, yeah. but of course it, it, it's different. The the new generation of cars that we're looking at anyway are, are quite far removed from sports cars. There's obviously the specialists like Morgan and so on that still produce open two-seaters, Lotus, but Mazda, of course, MX-5, but we're not aware that the two-seater figures in their plans at the moment. We hope so, but I think part of the problem is open two-seat sports cars in China. A bit difficult with the pollution and everything. Yeah, uh, with the roof down, so <laughs> that's a bit of a, a non-starter. But yeah. we, we live in hope. Because you do own a dealership still, or you did own the dealership? Or? Yeah, the MG Owners Club, yeah, I mean, we're, we're based down near Cambridge, and the Club HQ, we ha- had a dealership for selling um, the MGTF, which was what, what was in production when MG Rover went into receivership, mm. but the Chinese carried on with that for a few years, and we... Uh, sold quite successfully we're not sort of like in a high street position here so footfall was not great but yeah we 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 were able to sell obviously to our enthusiast base and people that knew about us when that ceased production and went into the saloons which is the mg6 followed by the mg3 which is a smaller hatchback we decided to withdraw um sort of mothball the dealership but we're still a recognized authorized repairer so we we do do warranty work here because we've we've actually got a a full-blown service and uh, restoration work yeah, uh, on I the premises. Yeah, I was going to touch on that actually. Yeah, it's, um, mm. it's quite a place. Um, what I was going to do is go back to you and Roach. Um, I noticed the two of you have written a couple of books that I found, but probably contributed to even more than those, just those two, I would think. Yeah, the MG collection was something that I, pub- well, I had published, which was uh, very fortunate. Haynes Publishing did uh, two volumes, which was pre war cars and post war cars throughout the years from 1980 when uh, when I gave up my day job to work for the club I, I did some features in a monthly MG where there was a centre spread feature on a specific model of MG like a four page five page uh, spread with a in- interesting information and specifications about individual models and it's one of the beauties of MG there's just so many different models and variations been built over the years since nine, late 1920s 20, you know 1926 27 onwards through to the present day so i ended up doing this series in our magazine which ultimately got uh, published in these uh, these two books so i actually took all the the, the pictures a bit, bit like a coffee table book yeah uh, nice big yeah. color pictures and specs of the cars and uh, often used as a bit of a reference well, i was going to say yeah, that's what my friend uses them for he's an enthusiast and he he's got both and i was going to say to our listeners here um via the magic of amazon and stuff they're they're available both of those books so it's uh, yeah they're out of print i see they're available and exchanging hands free re- money. Re- reasonable money so, yeah, I saw uh, that. so i had a little look today and they are yeah they are shifting for a few Bob, I yeah. so, so um, yeah, I'm not retiring on the strength of it. <laughs> Going back to that, actually, I mean, so it went from being in a pub, really, to like this magnificent headquarters that you've got now. That, that's that's quite a yeah, quite well, it's a been, uh, been quite a journey, and you know, it's been really great to be part of something that's as successful as it is. So in the early days, Roach was, I mean, he, he had his day job along with his brother, also, and myself. And <laughs> okay, we were meeting uh, in the in the pub. Roach had an idea to open up things because he'd, he'd been arranging discounts with local suppliers in the, you know, Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire for um, owners of the cars so they could get their parts 
cheaply at the local MG Heart Centre or um, an insurance discount with a you know specialised broker, all those sorts of things. But it mm. was just on a local basis, and he had the idea to um, extend meetings around the country. So um, suddenly we found we'd have somebody that'd be running a, a meeting in Watford, for example, or uh, further up in Manchester. So really, lo- local MG owners clubs started to um, to grow. Um, the interest um, certainly came, and uh, we, we were offering sort of like a, a monthly photocopied newsletter. Ultimately, started negotiating for national um, discounts. You know, perhaps with tyre companies or um, exhaust centres, and um, extending the insurance scheme, that that type of thing. So it was really just a, a catalyst for um, getting more and more benefits out to people in, in, in various parts of the UK. But to say that was back 1973, we were advertising in the Exchange and Mark, you know, to join join the MG Owners Club, and uh, suddenly we found we got a, a pretty strong following. So by, by 1980, I think we had about 3,500 members. Roach persuaded me to give up my, my day jobs. Sold the house and moved up to Cambridgeshire, which is... Obviously so you threw in completely then? Yes. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah. So we moved up to Cambridgeshire, which then was very uh, very sleepy, unlike now, which is much, much busy and been a lot of development over the years with Science Park and so on. But when we first moved up here, we were basically operating the club from a, a very um, small operation. Um, we've always been in the area since we moved up here, so uh, our expansion has remained within... Swavesey, which is a little a village on the edge of the fens, just northwest of Cambridge. So you and the, the and you, I suppose, eventually moved into your larger premises over time, sort of organically, I suppose. Yes, as the club started to grow, we, you know, we were introducing more and more benefits as a whole raft of benefits for members that join us and subscribe to our services. A really important one was insurance. I mentioned earlier, but in 1985, the club actually started to operate its own insurance scheme under the guidance of a, um, an overseeing broker so we were very, we were able to offer you know a very competitive insurance scheme for for members and that that alone enticed people to join because they were saving considerable sums on their on their premiums and around the same time we got, got more involved in actually procuring and, and supplying uh, spare parts although there were quite a number of recommended companies around the UK who were uh, offering parts to, to members at discount we ventured into it ourselves so, uh, and that uh, has ultimately led to the parts operation we've got here today yeah and also I guess once you go into the parts part the restoration parts obviously the next step um, was it first what d- d- doing the the restoration yeah, workshop yeah what did you do first did you have that uh, first part, or the parts, parts first the parts um, and accessories side of the club started to build first but the workshop followed very um, very quickly so um, it went sort of ha- hand in hand we're very fortunate we've got a, a ready-made supply of parts on the premises it was really just identifying a need and fulfilling that need today we've got members traveling well from the near continent on europe to get a car restored or you know we even have people coming over from ireland and places like that uh, just just to to get an mot well not quite as simple as that but uh, people do seem to travel great distances uh, 
to come and get their get their work uh, carried out on their car. We can understand it, can't you? Because uh, you know you've got the expertise there, and they can trust you guys that you're you're not going to bolt parts on that have come from unknown sources, etc. So you can you can definitely understand why they do that. I think for sure. Well, yes. I mean, we, we, we've built uh, and earned a very very good reputation o- over the years. We've got all sorts of accreditation with um, British Motor Heritage, we're an ex-part um, recognised um, workshop and so on and uh, mentioned earlier uh, MG Motor UK, currently producing MGs through Longbridge you know, we're an authorised repairer for them, so it's it's having this confidence I think because uh, a lot of people who own MGs, you know, they do lavish a lot of time and care and money on their cars, uh, a lot of them are in love with their cars, certainly, and, you know, hopefully by bringing their car to us, they know they're going to be um, looked after, and the engineers that are working on the cars, you know, themselves own MGs, you know, they're, they're, they're going to get get good service, which is really what it's all about. Yeah, because uh, one of the other presenters of this show, because mine goes out like every three or four weeks, and then there's three weeks of American shows, Mr. Steve Ronaldo actually owns and prizes an MGB, and he's an AACA board member. So he's, oh, okay, uh, in, in the States. Yeah, yeah, one of the presenters of the show's got an MGB. He's a real enthusiast. It's time to take a break, and we'll be back with Richard Monk of the MG Owners Club on the Classic Car Show from America's Web Radio. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Today's guest is Richard Monk of the MG Owners Club, the largest single mark club in the world. I see from your site you do have a lot of American interest as well. Well, yeah, I was going to come on to that. I mean, the American affection for MG is legendary. I mean, it goes back to the 1930s. I mean, there were um, a few um, MGs that managed to get shipped across to the state, not not in huge numbers. It was more like individuals buying a car in the UK and getting it shipped across, like um, little early M- M-type midgets and things like that, which are 1930s. Uh, there's sort of, uh, certainly evidence and records that people were shipping cars individually but it didn't take long you know dealerships to manifest themselves in the states and it's quite astonishing to learn that over well quite a considerable period the number of mgs that were exported into north america well particularly the states but obviously canada was lumped in with with north america i was just looking before uh you know coming on air that quite surprisingly, if we just took MGB and MGB GT, which is car I'm sure many of the listeners will be able to um, associate with and recognise, I mean, here are the statistics. Something like total production of those cars, MGB and GT, was 
about 512,000. But 349,000, nearly 350,000, uh, went to North America. So if you do some quick maths, that only left about 162,000 for the rest of the world and the UK. I'm talking about a period between 1962 and 1980. So the Americans really did take to those cars. But prior to that, they were certainly very, very much in love with um, the earlier T-series cars, t TCs, TDs, TFs. In fact, it's, it's widely recognised and said that MG was the, the sports car that America loved first. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's. I, I think the other little bit of research that I did as well was the desire for the uh, World War Two GIs and pilots and stuff taking oh, them back the to UK. the states as well. Well, bringing it, taking them back to the states with well, them as yeah. well. A lot of American Air Force stations in the UK. We still got some, haven't? Although they're being uh, being run down, uh, certainly in East Anglia, Lake and Heath yeah. and Alconbury and that sort of thing. But if you go back to the 80s, American servicemen who were over here bought MGs in great numbers and they'd obviously buy a left-hand drive and then when, when they'd finished their stint here, they'd get it shipped back to America. Yeah, I, I actually interviewed um, Philip White from Bista Heritage a few weeks back. He thought that Bista was basically a racetrack with um, things like MGs running around the outside of it during the war. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's all that you know, it's all that kind of heritage and history, isn't it? That all that sort of goes into everything. Well, cer- certainly, I think it's an attraction for everybody. I mean, people will buy an MG for the, their own reasons, mainly because of the history and the heritage that surrounds it. But a very important aspect to MG as a manufacturer, certainly um, when it was based in Abingdon, well, and latterly at uh, at Longbridge in Birmingham. But competition, you know, was very important helping them sell cars. So MGs were out in all sorts of races, sprints and rallies and and so on. And they were very successful and, of course, managed to sell quite a lot of cars uh, to aspirational people who saw that MG was good, reliable, fast, you know, economical car to buy. I mean, to this day, Shanghai Automotive, who own MG, they're putting cars out in the British uh, touring car. Touring car yeah. You know, the M- MG6 uh, is out and does does pretty well. You know, we've had the likes of Jason Plato and others uh, driving for the for the factory team. You know, it, it it all helps and keeps the the name in front of everybody. Definitely. I mean, it's got a sort of confession to make, which will age me a little bit but I'm, I'm from Reading and I live in Reading and I as a youngster used to look through the windows of Morris Garages which used to eventually became Hewins in Reading which was uh, right. kind of an offshoot of the original dealership if you like I guess so yeah. um, so just showing my age a little bit so yeah. uh, there was I think it was in Castle Hill in Reading years ago and it was it was smaller obviously than what was going on over at um, Abingdon and the original dealership but it was still part of the Morris Garages group and I, I think yeah. A lot of people, particularly maybe in the States and stuff, don't realise, I guess, sometimes that MG is Morris Garages. No, a lot of people ask the question, what does MG stand for? And yeah. uh, exactly that, Morris Garages, because the very early MGs were based on Morris's. Yes, yeah. Um, William Morris, who had his factory in Oxford making Morris's, uh, a chap called Cecil Kimber, who ultimately became sort of the, ma- the manager of the a- Avenue factory. They, they then uh, had all these dealerships around the country, which, you know, certainly helped to sell sell, sell the MGs. What do you drive currently? Do you, do you have a daily driver MG still, or do you keep it for special occasions, or what do you use yourself? Uh, well, I've, I've, got a, I've got a daily driver, which is a bit of a one-off, and it's an MG ZTT, which came from the uh, MG Rover, period the 
factory were quite successful in certainly uh, improving and uprating and modifying and changing the look of the Rover cars. The Rover 25, the Rover 45 and the Rover 75 became the MGZR, MGZS and MGZT. And the car I've got is a, is a prototype which is a bit of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing or a Q car, very much un- understated in some ways, but MG Rover were looking to do a range of cars that were cut above the, the, the standard cars under the X-Power brand, which is something you might have heard mm, of. But yes. They did campaign cars at Le Mans and raced X-Power cars there quite successfully. It was all part of their um, plans to promote the brand, you know, align themselves with the success of MG in competition circles. But they were going to introduce a V8 version of MG ZT. It originally came out with a V6 and uh, did 2-litre diesel and various other uh, engine options. We're going to bring in more of an extreme version. So they completely revamped the powertrain on the V6 version from front-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive and dropped a Ford Mustang 4.6 V8 uh, engine in. And that was pumping out 260 yeah. brake course. So they, they then were going to market what they called the MG ZT 260. And they had plans then to do one that was... Um, even more powerful and they did a, what's called a 385 which was uh, supercharged uh, my car is actually the first production car that went down the line in Longbridge it was signed off pr- for production and it was the only one so they never got into production because uh, MG Rover got into difficulties and uh, the rest is history as they say when they went into liquidation. Yeah. But they also had pr- another prototype which was called an MG X-Power 500 which is a 500 brake horse V8 supercharged. That was the car they originally produced as, as the mule or the prototype for bringing out the, the 260. So there's, there's, there were three versions, 260, 385 and 500. Uh, the club actually owns the X-Power 500 and that's on show here in our showroom so visitors can oh, have, okay. a, have a drool over it. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a, it's a one-off. We, we rescued that from the factory. When the uh, company went into liquidation, the liquidators had an auction and we bid at auction for the car. Uh, it was in a bit of a mess and we've actually restored it back to virtually how it was. MG Rover were using it as a, a promotional and prototype vehicle. So there's effectively, so there's the two left then, the one you've got and that one, and that's all that's left or all there ever was. Um, of those particular cars but the production cars the ZT 260s they also did a Rover version with that V8 configuration yeah there were fair number managed managed to get through uh, somewhere around the two and a half three thousand mark so um it's a rare beast i shouldn't think you'll ever want to part with that one no no <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very quick um very quick car and so the only giveaway is probably the, the twin exhausts at the back so um, i'm nice not really sound boy, not a really boy <laughs> racer but um <laughs> well, but have you ever um got to the old buyer's remorse thing where you've bought a basket case there's the old love is blind thing with classic cars isn't there unfortunately yeah actually for Fortunately not. I haven't. I mean, I've owned MGs since I was about, let me think, probably about 18, 19. Oh, wow. Um, I won't tell you how old I am now, but I'm near <laughs> retirement age. And I've always owned MGs. I mean, along the way, before family came along, I did uh, do some restorations. I bought an MG TC, which was a 1947 car. Again, a car that was very popular in the in the States. Quite huge numbers of those cars were exported into the state. You know, the old wire wheels and uh, cycle wings. And I, I bought one of those to restore. And it was a bit of a labour of love, but I did eventually 
sell that. I would have liked to have hung on to it. Young family came along, sort of scotched it. So I did ultimately go back to bought a, a pre-war car, which was an MG L1 Magna, which was a um, 1932. Beautiful straight 6,000cc engine. Beautiful classic swept wing lines and everything. Purchased that partly restored and finished it off myself. But it, again, I wasn't using it a great deal because of being so busy working weekends with the club, you know, building the club. It didn't get a lot of use. So I did. I, I sold it and my wife persuaded me to buy a conservatory on the back of the house. You know, <laughs> So I sit in the conservatory oh, yeah. thinking <laughs> it would be nice to sit in my old type instead. But anyway. Is that, is that uh, the oldest that you know? Yeah, the 1932 car, yeah. But no, I've got another car which doesn't come out every day, which is a 1974 MGB GT V8. They produced two and, about two and a half thousand of those with the Rover V8 and GT. Quite quite a, a collector's car again because they weren't built in huge numbers. When I purchased that, I was the second owner. Um, and it was 18 months old then. Uh, I've still got it. Quite well known in MG circles. I did use it every day for quite a quite a long period. But it comes out now on high days and holidays. Yeah. Great. Actually, sort of part of me, really. when I was researching it, is that the one that you had the crash in or someone ran into you? or uh, Yeah, that did, one? did have yeah. a bit of a misdemeanour, which was to- totally not my fault. Hasten to add, some um, inconsiderate gentleman in a Vauxhall pulled out from a, a side junction straight in front of me, and I managed mm. to T-bone him straight in the side, and it was touching to be written off. I, n- I nearly wrote him off, but... I can imagine. It, we, we did manage to get the car stripped out and put onto a special jig and got it all straightened out, so it was was put back on the road thankfully did you manage to do that all at the at the club yes that was done yeah. at the club workshops so we, uh, it went away for a specialist laser alignment because we didn't have that on the premises so you know make sure it was all um, pro- properly realigned but yeah so that was uh, one good side of the classic car insurance i guess that was was able to look after that for you at least well that's right we as i said earlier i think we operated our own insurance scheme one of the things that we were able to introduce which is commonplace nowadays but in, in the mid 80s it wasn't necessarily so and that's what we call agreed value insurance and all classic car clubs and classic car insurers are uh, offering that nowadays where the car is insured for its market value not you know as a classic vehicle and you know in my instance when the car was involved in that accident it was it was valued at i think at the time probably about eight or nine thousand and the repair repair costs were um probably about five or six but you know with the agreed value in place the insurers say well in the event of a total write-off or whatever that is what the value will be so um, a lot of instances before it was just well what what does the book book value say and it could be considerably lower than an agreed value where you've probably invested in having cars resprayed or had new engines put in or even personalized it with leather interiors and so you've lavished quite a bit of um, money on the car you want to be able to insure it for um, well at least what you've invested in it yeah exactly so, um, yeah. it's uh, how agreed value works it's good to have it in place i don't know what it is in in this country i'm not sure if it's the same in the states but i've got a 66 herald and i've got a 1929 model a sport coupe and right. if, if when i'm out in it for some reason people will feel they have to drive much closer to you now whether they're looking at the car <laughs> or they decide they can pull out in front of you because you clearly can't move more than 10 mile an hour to move along the road and it's it's like, it's totally different to when you're driving your normal car and it's yeah, strange mm, i think it's curiosity in a lot of cases yeah. you know people's that's, that's interesting you don't see them on the road every day yeah. pull alongside on a dual carriageway and have a good look i think also depend on what the car is if it's at all sporty they maybe think oh well 
I'll show this uh, classic car owner a clean pair of heels, you know, and uh, blow us into the weeds. But, um, no, I think certainly from a classic point of view, I think we were talking about insurance. I think um, most classic car owners drive their cars, you know, with caution and sympathy. It's time to take a break and we'll be back with Richard Monk of the MG Owners Club on the Classic Car Show from America's Web Radio. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Today's guest is Richard Monk of the MG Owners Club, the largest single mark club in the world. They've lavished a lot of time, probably money, on the car. They don't want to sort of um, no. wrap it in a lamppost or yeah. spin off a roundabout or whatever they want to do. It's, it's generally that uh, classic car drivers are, are good risk. Yeah, and particularly if you've got an older vehicle that doesn't stop very well and stuff, you are always very careful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I suppose that's another thing that... Uh, other road users don't fully appreciate that you can't pull up on a sixpence, you know, and uh, whatever. But, no, I mean, over the years, um, with the insurance scheme that we ran, claims ratios cert- certainly on classic cars are, are fairly low. It's very rare that these cars get badly damaged or written off unless it's uh, some other idiot causing the problem. Yeah, I mean, these days, you know, particularly with particular brands and uh, MGs in particular, you can just about get every part you need to get. So, Well, yeah, that's, mm. that's the beauty of it. And this is one of the things that we've concentrated on over the years is building a, a huge inventory of parts, in, in many cases is getting them remanufactured to um, ensure that the cars can stay on the road at reasonable cost. If you if you came here to the Club HQ, you'd see a huge warehouse with you know millions of pounds worth of um, parts, you know from probably the 1950s r- right the way through to certainly um, early 2000s. Most most parts available. What's you know. your uh, ratio of new old stock these days to remanufacturing? Difficult, difficult to say, but the, the bulk of our members uh, have got, I, I would say, 1960s to 1980s cars, so that encompasses MGBs, MGCs, V8s, MG Midgets, those, those sort of cars. So our, our stock holding is probably greater for those uh, 
uh, groups of cars, but uh, you know the earlier cars we we carry quite a few consumable parts for servicing, and also the later cars. But you know some of the later cars are still serviced by companies like Xpart, um, MG Motor themselves. But of course, outside of us, there's, there's quite a number of small independent. Uh, companies that are into supplying um, M- MG parts. So if we can't supply it, we can certainly point people in the right direction. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, uh, I guess these days you probably don't get too many finds of dealerships with a, a warehouse full of parts that nobody's found before and stuff like that. It's getting less and less, I well, guess. Well, no, I mean, the, the dealerships and the repair repair workshops attached to the dealerships, they, they don't carry stocks, really. They'll, they'll carry consumables, but with the supply chain now, it's almost on demand. So, you know, you, you could order a part in the morning and it'd be delivered from a... The motor factors or um, you know a, where, a warehouse in the afternoon so the car can be repaired yeah we are unusual in that that we we've got actually stock on the premises a to service uh, huge mail order side of things and we also get visitors here come to the parts counter but uh, not only to service that it can service our workshop as well so unique um, situation there do you do you ship abroad a lot parts wise uh, we do indeed yes certainly to all parts of the world where mg's were exported australia new zealand obviously america i mentioned earlier quite quite a number of uh, concerns on, on the near continent in Europe, France, Belgium, Holland, Germany. And in fact, we, we, we are able to offer a delivery service uh, in the trade um, over to uh, the continent. So um, they, they could order parts from us and have them the following day in a lot of instances. They may not necessarily be solely MG specialists over there, but... Um, and, you know, their MG customers would form a major part, but they're probably a British classic car in the workshop or something like that, so they'd have Jaguar, Triumph, MG, because uh, there's a lot of commonality with parts, uh, certainly with the earlier cars like water pumps and uh, tornadoes, dynamos and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're exporting parts all over the world. Because things like sprites and stuff, there's a, certainly a lot of crossover, isn't there, with parts and bits and pieces? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, strange enough, things like old Land Rover and so on. You know, if you go back to the BMC days and um, prior to that, Nuffield, Lord Nuffield, um, you know, those, those old marks. Well. <laughs> yeah, Wolsey, Riley, the Triumph and MG, and, and they all had the same water pump or whatever. So, um, that's a yeah. good, well, it's a good, I mean, it's a good income stream, isn't it, as well, to, to also not only just keep the hobby going in terms of the vehicles, but it's also, you know, keeps the club, healthy and everything else so it's uh, well yeah i mean we're, we're not your average average car club we've always been um, very um, commercial and very open how 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 we operate and we've uh, certainly plowed profits back into infrastructure and buildings over the years to enable us to provide the service that we do i mean there are other uh, clearly there's other similar clubs run on similar lines like jaguar enthusiast club and so on they're all commercially run clearly we're we're able to make commercial decisions with the man- management team and you know pe- people clearly like what we do because otherwise they'd vote with their feet um, they, would, yeah, they, they can't they, they can't vote uh, for officers within the club like you obviously have in some clubs that obviously run on a um, democratic and uh, if you like amateur lines i'm not being derogatory there but run by enthusiasts so we do obviously allow our, our members who subscribe an opportunity to feed back to us so they can have an, an annual questionnaire to report back to us how, how we're getting on and give us suggestions and uh, other things which hopefully we can introduce. So we like to obviously think of ourselves as the, the one-stop shop for MG. Yeah, our website, I'm sure you'll have, see the, yeah. the raft of things that Very are, impressive. are on offer. <laughs> 
it's a lifestyle, you know, it's not just owning an MG, it, everything else that goes with it. Yeah, it's interesting you use that term. I, I interviewed Nigel Case last week of the Classic Car Club in London, who right. they were sort of members club. He's got a fleet of cars and you pay a membership fee, like a timeshare type thing. Yeah. And he said that's what they're doing, really, selling the lifestyle thing, because in London people can't really afford to park a car or do whatever, and he's got a whole vault full of cars. Someone comes along, pays a fee for a year, and uses the whole fleet of cars from MGs to Mercs and Mustangs. And, yeah, and, it, and it's, that's a good way of uh, doing it. Yeah, um, particularly yeah. in that area, for sure. It's a, but it, it, do you have any connection with the other clubs at all? Do you do shared events or anything like that? Uh, yes, we do, actually. It, uh, certainly M- MG is, is, is pretty well served with ourselves and um, other... We do have joint events. Uh, you know, MG were produced in such huge numbers that you know, the MG cake is quite quite large, so there's a, there's a slice for for everybody we're by far the largest club in M- mg terms there's, there's other clubs that actually deal with more specific models within the mg range and some of them deal with for example pre-1956 cars only the mg octagon car club is, is a club that deals with pre-1956 only and there's another smaller club called the early mg society and they just deal with cars from the 1930s which are the sort of like 1880s as they were called yes big saloons but uh, you know those those clubs we have a very good working relationship with and and certainly have an affiliation with them so we'll get on very well because obviously with you having a more commercial structure you can obviously help in terms of advising them in parts purchasing and all sorts of things i guess Yes, and uh, things that we've set up over the years, like you probably saw on our website, a travel club that we operate, where we have organised and escorted uh, trips and tours to all sorts of things, Le Mans, Le Mans Classic, Le Mans 24-hour bar classic, because all those motoring events, plus just, you know, leisure leisure trips and tours to Southern Ireland or uh, Northern Spain or wherever. We've been all over the place, even took MGs to Iceland a few years (laughs) back. (laughs) <laughs> so we're able to offer those trips and tours to um, uh, friends and colleagues in other associated clubs. Yeah, I do, uh, do like to see that, and I actually think that's a real difference with the UK classic car scene. Talking to Chris Gunby at the Transport 6 Club, they go to Le Mans Classic and they go to Spa and things like that, and it's it's great that they get used more than people just sitting in deck chairs and looking at them, I well, think. This is it, and the fact that we escort a lot of these tours, it's, it's very nice to be able to do that. It's a peace of mind thing, so, you know, if they're trundling across to Southern Ireland on the ferry, it's not that far away, I know, but it's still a bit of an adventure, and, you know, if there's a breakdown, we, we can organise getting parts shipped out overnight or whatever, and I think it's really what, what the attraction is. Plus, of course, they're going along with like-minded enthusiasts. Certainly the Southern Ireland trip, we've been running that for nearly 20 years now, and we move round to different towns. This year we'll be having probably about 80 cars, so that's 160 people trundling around uh, Southern Ireland. It, it, it is, as you say, a good reason to get the car out and use it and enjoy, enjoy it. Yeah, because they do deteriorate, you know, that's the worst thing. I mean, I, my if you're couple, not using them. Yeah, yeah I mean, my couple, I don't, this time of year particularly, I, I try and get them out once a week if I can, the two of them, but often the weather's so bad that you'd end up cleaning it for two days after you take it out. <laughs> no, there is this, isn't there? It's, um, yeah. Should I take it out or not? But uh, hopefully summer's not too far away. Well, uh, that's the thing. What are the benefits do the members get? I know you, your magazine looks excellent. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a monthly full-colour yeah. magazine. We've got a full 
full-time editorial team here producing that and other, other publications. And nowadays, like others, we, you can view it electronically on the website. Um, so um, we're all high-tech. I guess the, the other uh, uh, aspect where the invention is the, the technical advice. I've got two full-time technical advisors here who spend all day on the phone talking about gearboxes and uh, various other exciting bits, you know, about how, how to help them out with the issues of their cars. There's parts that I've mentioned, uh, the travel club, the insurance. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole raft of things we, we do um, partnerships with uh, other organizations to save members money with whether it's tickets to other motoring events or hotel discounts so we're always trying to add value to to the to the core product so to speak yeah i see events wise you've got um, a huge range including motorsport stuff and uh, it's it's uh, and we, we, we have our own uh, a championship which uh, is uh, a 10 rounds at all, all the major race circuits in the uk very popular club championship with uh, with full grid five different classes from uh, mgb's midget the mg rover saloons the z z series saloons you know the hot hatches mgs and tf we've got probably about uh, 130 drivers registered with us who, uh, who race with us uh, obviously most weekends in the summer and widely recognized as one of the um, uh, best and affordable club championships of its of its type how does your membership split globally do you uh, do they all join the core club or are there sort of satellites um, yeah i mean we we have the bulk of members are obviously in the uk we're we're serving some something like twenty two thousand in the uk and three three thousand around the rest of the world they are actually subscribing members fully signed up members uh, outside of that we have affiliations with with other clubs and they obviously uh, join their local club whether it's from argument's sake in, in Auckland in New Zealand or wherever but with affiliations in, into um, MG Owners Club in, in the UK you know people when they visit the UK they come and come and see us but essentially they're autonomous from us although they have an affiliation we don't have any direct connection or say in, in their affairs on a, on a local basis and, that, and that's true of the clubs around the UK earlier on I mentioned like Watford MG Owners Club they all have an affiliation with us they uh, obviously organise all their things on a local basis It's been an excellent interview what have you got project wise coming up that you're able to speak about I guess for the future um, difficult to say you know we're, we're pretty innovative and adventurous trying to look at new things we're certainly embracing all the media a bit more the modern the modern media with uh, twitter and facebook and all those sorts of things to try and engage um, perhaps some younger people it is a changing marketplace i think the appeal that perhaps an mgb had to me when i was a teenager is uh, not so appealing to a teenager nowadays a they don't understand why it hasn't got electric seats and electric windows and you know all the other bits and pieces but i think uh, probably a, an active campaign is maybe the wrong word but uh, just try and encourage uh, younger people to come in and we do do engage them on places like uh, facebook and so on we're not sure what the future holds for the classic car movement we're we're soldiering ahead and hoping that we've got plenty more years yet of helping people um, own and enjoy running their mg yeah i think that's a, a great note to finish and thanks for your time today richard it's been a really interesting interview bye for now okay nice to talk to you thanks Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have 
the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. To finish off today's MG-based program, we have a history of MG read to you by Karen Wilkinson Flood with assistance from Wikipedia. Hope you enjoy it. MG is a British automotive mark registered by the defunct MG Car Company Limited, a British sports car manufacturer begun in the 1920s as a sales promotion sideline within W.R. Morris's Oxford City retail sales and service business by the business's manager Cecil Kimber. Best known for its two-seat open sports cars, MG also produced saloons and coupes. Kimber was an employee of William Morris. MG are the initials for Morris Garages. The MG business was Morris's personal property until 1st of July 1935, when he sold MG to his holding company, Morris Motors Limited, restructuring his holdings before issuing shares in Morris Motors to the public in 1936. MG underwent many changes in ownership, starting with Morris merging with Austin in the British Motor Corporation Limited in 1952. MG became the MG division of BMC in 1967 and so a component of the 1968 merger that created British Leyland Motor Corporation. By the start of 2000, MG was part of the MG Rover Group, which entered receivership in 2005 and the assets and the MG brand were purchased by Nanjing Automobile Group for £53 million. Production restarted in 2007 in China and later at Longbridge Plant in the UK under the current manufacturer MG Motor. The first all-new model from MG in the UK for 16 years, the MG6, was officially launched on the 26th of June 2011. The original MG mark was in continuous use except for the duration of the Second World War, for 56 years following its inception in 1923. The production of predominantly two-seater sports cars was concentrated at a factory in Abingdon, some 10 miles south of Oxford. The British Motor Corporation Competition Department was also based at the Abingdon plant, producing many winning rally and race cars until the Abingdon factory closed and MGB production ceased in the autumn of 1980. 
Between 1982 and 1991, the MG Mark used to badge engineer sportier versions of Austin Rover's Metro, Maestro or Montego ranges. The MG Mark was not revived in its own right until 1992, with the MG RV8, an updated MG Roadster with a Rover V8 engine, which was previewed at the 1992 Birmingham Motor Show, with low-volume production commencing in 1993. A second revival came in the summer of 1995, when the high-volume MGF two-seater Roadster was launched. The MG Mark, along with the Rover Mark, went to the MG Rover Group in May 2000, when BMW broke up the Rover Group. This arrangement had the return of MG badges on sportier Rover-based cars, such as the MG ZT in 2001 along with a revised MGF model known as the MGTF, launched in 2002. However, all production ceased in April 2005 when MG Rover went into administration. The assets of MG Rover were bought by Chinese car maker Nanjing Automobile in July 2005, subsequently bought by Sayek in December 2007, which now operate a UK subsidiary, MG Motor. The company's name supposedly originated from the initials of Morris Garages. W.R. Morris's Lord Nuffield's original Oxford City retail sales and service business when the business's manager Cecil Kimber began promoting sales by producing his own versions. Kimber had joined the company as its sales manager in 1921 He was promoted to general manager in 1922, a position he held until 1941, when he fell out with Lord Nuffield over procuring wartime work. Kimber died in 1945 in a railway accident. Debate remains as to when the MG car company started. Although the first cars bore both Morris and MG badges, in addition to reference to MG with the Opticon badge appears in an Oxford newspaper from November 1923. The MG Octagon was registered as a trademark by Morris Garages on the 1st of May 1924, with its 90th anniversary being widely celebrated in 2014. Others dispute this and believe that MG only properly began trading in 1925. The explanation may lie in the distinction between the MG business and the company of that name, which may have come to own it later. The first cars, which were rebodied Morris models, used coachwork from car bodies of Coventry and were built in premises in Alfred Lane, Oxford. Demand soon caused a move to larger premises in Bainton Road in September 1925, sharing space with the Morris Radiator Works. Continuing expansion meant another move in 1927 to a separate factory in Edmund Road, Cowley, Oxford, near the main Morris factory, and for the first time it was possible to include a production line. In 1928, the company had become large enough to warrant an identity separate from the original Morris garages, and the MG Car Company Limited was established in March of that year. And in October, for the first time, a stand was taken at the London Motor Show. Space again soon ran out and a search for a permanent home led to the lease of part of an old leather factory in Abingdon, Oxfordshire in 1929, gradually taking over more space until production ended there in 1980. 
The MG Car Club was founded in 1930 for owners and enthusiasts of MG cars. Originally owned personally by William Morris, MG was sold in 1935 to Morris Motors, a change that was to have serious consequences for MG, particularly its motorsport activities. MG was absorbed with Morris into the British Motor Corporation Limited, created in 1952 to merge Morris Motors Limited and the Austin Motor Company Limited. Long-time service manager John Thornley took over as general manager, guiding the company through its best years until his retirement in 1969. Under BMC, several MG models were no more than badge-engineered versions of other marks, with the main exception being the small MG sports cars. BMC took over Jaguar cars in September 1966, and that December, BMC changed its name to British Motor Holdings. BMH joined with Leyland Motor Corporation in 1968 to form British Leyland Motor Corporation. Following partial nationalisation in 1975, BLMC became British Leyland. British Leyland's management and engineering staff were predominantly from the former Leyland organisation, which included MG's historical close rival Triumph. Triumph was grouped into BL's specialist division, alongside Rover and Jaguar, while MG was retained with the other former BMC marks in the Austin Morris division, which otherwise made mass-production family cars. While new Triumph models such as the TR7 and the Dolomite were launched, during the 1970s no new MG models were introduced apart from the limited production V8 version of the MGB. While the MG operations was profitable, these profits were entirely offset by the huge losses accrued by the rest of the Austin Morris division, and any funding to the division within BL was allocated to urgently required mass market models, leaving MG with limited resources to develop and maintain its existing model range, which became increasingly outdated. Amidst a mix of economic, internal and external politics, the Abingdon factory was shut down on 24th of October 1980 as part of the drastic programme of cutbacks necessary to turn BL around after the turbulent times of the 1970s. The last car to be built there was the MGB, and after the closure of the Abingdon plant, the MG mark was temporarily abandoned. Though many plants were closed, none created such an uproar among workers, dealers, clubs and customers as this closure did. Years later, Sir Michael Edwards expressed regret about his decision. In 1982, the mark was revived and the Austin Rover Group built high-performance versions of their saloon and hatchback models built at Longbridge or Cowley. The MG Metro continued until 1990, with the Maestro Montego versions being suspended a year later. After BL became the Rover Group in 1986, ownership of the MG mark passed to British Aerospace in 1988 and then in 1994 to BMW. The MG name was revived in 1993 with the launch of the MG RV8, followed by the mid-engine MGF in 1995. BMW sold the business in 2000 and the MG mark passed to the MG Rover Group based in Longbridge, Birmingham. The practice of selling unique MG sports cars alongside badge-engineered models continued. The group went into receivership in 2005 and car production was suspended on 7th of April 2005. 
As of 2003, the site of the former Abingdon factory was host to McDonald's and the Thames Valley Police, though only the former office block still standing. The headquarters of the MG Car Club is situated next door. In 2006, it was reported that an initiative called Project Kimber, led by David James, had entered talks with Nanjing to buy the MG brand to produce a range of sports cars based on the discontinued Smart Roadster design by Daimler Chrysler. No agreement was reached, which resulted in the AC car's mark being adopted for the new model instead. As of 2009, the project appears to be dormant. On 22nd of July 2005, the Nanjing Automobile Group purchased the rights to the MG brand and the assets of the MG Rover Group for £53 million, creating a new company called NAC MG UK. This was later renamed MG Motor after the merging of Nanjing Automobile with Shanghai Automobile Industry Corporation. In 2011, MG launched a new model, the MG6 in GT and Magnet versions, which became the first new generation MG available in the UK since the MGTF. The MG range is now sold in China, Chile, Colombia, Brazil, Costa Rica, South Africa and the United Kingdom. Availability of models depending on market. The first all-new model for MG for 16 years, the MG6, was officially launched on 26th of June 2011 during a visit to MG Motors Longbridge plant by Chinese Premier Wen Yaibao. By March 2012, SEC had invested a total of £450 million in MG Motor. Sales in the UK totaled 782 vehicles in 2012. The new MG3 went on sale in the United Kingdom in September 2013. MG Motor was voted third place for the Best Manufacturer category in the Auto Express 2014 Driver Power Survey. MG celebrated its 90th birthday in 2014 and enjoyed further celebrations with a record-breaking year that had the company lead UK car industry growth in 2014. The MG brand sales rose by 361% during 2014, thanks in part to the introduction of the MG3 to the product range. That's all for today's MG-based show. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in soon for more from the UK on America's Web Radio, the classic car show. Thank you and goodbye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.